want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 20. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my expectations. Release you. Runway 411 zero, four, zero, at 5. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Fire Oh yeah, during that mission. So I'm I'm testing the M120D and I'm doing the high mock run. So the plan is to go as fast as I can, no more than 2.5 mock. Um, which initially we took six AMRAMs with us because the test did not call for eight AMRAMs. That's how many we can take. So we took six with us because it didn't say that we needed eight and the engineers thought it'd be fine. Um, and so I took six, which meant on one of my sides, I was missing two AMRAMs. So I was heavier on one side. And by the way, getting to Mach 2.5 um, in any aircraft is difficult. Well, you know, in, in these fighter aircraft is difficult. So trying to get to that speed uh, required me to basically be on the tanker, fully load up on gas, detach, and immediately go into afterburner, climb up to uh, 38,000, 39,000 feet. Today's guest is Air Force Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton. He's an F-35 test pilot, and he's the current director of the Air Force's Artificial Intelligence Accelerator at MIT. In that clip, he's talking about doing a weapons test in the F-15, going 20-plus miles a minute uh, maximum form an aircraft so it can get kind of sporty. We talk about his aviation career and a lot more in today's episode. I would like to thank all those who are supporting the podcast via Patreon, going to iTunes, hitting subscribe, leaving a rating review. It's definitely helping the podcast grow. So I appreciate it. If you are enjoying it and haven't done so, please swing over to iTunes, leave me a rating or review. Again, it's something small and simple, but it does make a, a big difference for me and the podcast and keeping this going. So thanks for all those who've done it. And again, if you haven't, please consider taking the time just to swing over there and hit a few buttons. And I also like to thank Wingman Watch for sponsoring this episode. Again, I love working with these guys, veteran-owned, founded by a fire pilot. If you're looking to build a custom watch for your group, your organization, swing over to wingmanwatch.com. It's super easy. Start to finish, they take care of it all. It's free to start. Wingmanwatch.com. Again, you won't be disappointed. If you see a watch on there you already like, you can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off. Just mention my name for your group customization order, and you'll get a discount on that too. All right, with that being said, let's roll into the podcast with Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton. Sir, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, if you would mind, just give everyone just a little 30-second elevator pitch of who you are, uh, where you've been, and kind of what you're doing today, and then we'll dive into your aviation career. Yeah, Rain, thanks so much for having me. It, uh, it's great to be able to speak with you and, and share with your listeners, you know, some of my experiences as biased as they are. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I am a test pilot for the Air Force. So I've been flying aircraft, um, which was a surprise to me. It's kind of a surprise for me to even say that because <laughs> it was never my plan. But I've been flying, flying for the uh, Air Force since uh, 2002. And uh, I've had a, a very fortunate career flying lots of different aircraft, uh, went to test class school, uh, tested F-15Cs and E's, I've been working on programmatics for the F-35. And then after that, I um, was uh, director of operations and then the commander of F-35 development, which was an amazing experience. Uh, and then I found myself here at MIT and I'm the director of the uh, Department of the Air Force and MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator, uh, where we're trying to bring AI into uh, the department. And it's been fascinating. And once again, not something that I necessarily planned, but uh, I've loved uh, the journey so far. So I'd love to 
to share some stories about uh, how I got here and, and uh, my perspectives. Well, Carl Hamilton, again, thanks for joining me. I would like to kind of dive in to where it all started, or at least where I kind of found you it was Instagram, right? So you, you share a lot of videos on Instagram of the F-35 in particular in the test. So being a test pilot, can you kind of talk to me about the process? What, I mean, just rudimentary, how did you become a test pilot and what does that process look like? Yeah, I, I mean, I've loved being a test pilot. It has uh, suited me very well, but it's kind of a marriage between aviation and engineering. Um, though I would, I would say I don't do too much engineering as a test pilot. I, I need to understand what the engineers are saying. Uh, that's where the engineering degree comes in handy um, and is really a, a must have. Uh, so I became a test pilot after being an operational pilot for so long. Uh, basically, you have to have so many hours to apply to test pilot school. So you can't even really apply until around seven, eight years in your career. Um, you have about a two or three year window uh, where you have the hours to apply um, and then you're young enough to apply. So there's a, a very small window. Uh, they have about 80 uh, fighter pilots apply every year for about 10 slots. So it's, it's fairly competitive. You need to have a STEM background in order to do that. And I studied aerospace engineering at the University of Colorado. So I had that STEM background. I also knew that a master's degree would uh, help me be competitive. So I uh, received a master's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Tennessee while I was on active duty, which was uh, extremely difficult going <laughs> to classes in my first uh, fighter squadron uh, in aerospace. And then uh, got that degree uh, and they want to see pilots that have experienced different airframes. So I was an F-15C pilot, but then I was initial cadre for the MC-12, which is an intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance aircraft that was stood up in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so it was me and 10 other people. It was fantastic, amazing experiences. And I'm happy to share some stories with you there. But, uh, you know, did that in uh, combat and had that kind of experience with multiple airframes. And then you apply, um, you... Uh, have an opportunity to go out there and interview then. It's a flying interview where they, they throw you an aircraft that you're quote unquote unfamiliar with without basically any information. And they ask you to do certain things in those aircraft. Uh, they grade you. And it just so happened that um, I did well enough that I got selected to attend the uh, United States Air Force Test Pilot School Class 11 Bravo. So I, I began that journey in 2011, and it's a year-long uh, master's degree in flight test engineering where you fly like 30 different aircraft, just a, a fantastic aviation experience, probably the best aviation experience in the world. And while you're going through that, you're also taking engineering classes and writing, you know, 40-something reports. It is, uh, it is an intense, uh, intense academic uh, year with a lot of aviation and you're just learning basically how to be the first person to do something in an aircraft. So they, they want to give us a, a wide ranging, um, they, they want to give us wide ranging experiences so that when we find ourselves in an aircraft doing something for the first time that we have kind of a toolkit to lean back on of experiences of doing the unknown uh, through test spot school, if that makes sense. Yeah. And to me, that's fascinating. Obviously, because you're flying so many different airplanes and you're not getting the depth that we're used to when we go through Air Force training for a different weapon system. So if you're going to go fly airplane X, Y, or Z in test pilot school, how much like prep time, if you're going to go fly the T-38 or the F-16 and you've never done that and you get thrown into it, what is that? Is that like a week lead into it? Is it the night before you get tagged with it? How, how does that work? Yeah. So some of the aircraft we fly during test pilot school, we get qualified to fly. We don't go through a check ride, but so the C-12, the T-38, and the F-16, we actually get flight hours in with instructors, and we uh, oftentimes get cleared solo. So I, I could fly myself and a crew member in a C-12, I could fly crew solo in a T-38, and I flew solo in an F-16 as well. I have one hour in an F-16 seat. Nice. <laughs> Most of our solo time, quote unquote, is actually us solo with a flight test engineer uh, with us that is also a student. Um, so that's when we're cleared solo in those three aircraft. The other aircraft we fly, which is around 27, uh, it really depends. Sometimes you get more prep time. Uh, gliders, we flew more often, uh, some of the gliders. So you had experience to lean back on. In other planes, you had basically like one or two days. Um, and what they're trying to teach you is what do you need to know in order to be safe and successful on your mission? So for instance, the A-10 was probably the best experience. I loved it. 
Um, you show up on a Monday morning, you go through a day of academics. The next day you go through two or three Sims. And the next day you go out fully loaded in a single seat A10 because <laughs> there are no two, two seat A10s. Well, there are two of them uh, that have been retired from long ago. So you go out in a single seat A10 uh, with a, a fully loaded gun and bombs and you go out to the range with an instructor pilot on your wing and you do that after two days of training. Uh, and it typically takes, I think Air Force pilots going through the A-10 pipeline weeks and weeks to be able to actually fly on top of going out to the range and shooting the gun. So once the, it, it depends, but they really wanna make you feel uncomfortable uh, yet learn how to be safe in those situations. Yeah, that's phenomenal. What was the most challenging aspect of going through test pilot school? I think it was, it, it was learning uh, the flight dynamics of the different aircraft and how the, the different like equations of freedom, equations of motion, pardon me, the six degrees of freedom, equations of motion, all, like all that, how they come together and how um, you sitting in the cockpit flying a maneuver can now visualize in your brain how the different uh, aerodynamics are playing on the system and that how you are interacting human factors wise with that system. So like handling qualities is the way that the pilot handles the aircraft, which is totally different than flying qualities, which is the way that aerodynamics are affecting the flight controls and the flight systems and how those interface. So it's just the, the exercise every day of trying to connect like all of this very deep uh, academic knowledge into the aviation experience of flying a maneuver, right? So I, I'm rolling right, but what is really going on? And of course, people think, well, the ailerons are moving in the stats, yes, but there's more to it, right? There's something deeper. And then how does, how does that input to roll right actually go into the computer? And what are the biases that I'm bringing to this maneuver that I need to watch out for so that I can help other pilots overcome uh, certain challenges that they may have uh, when they're flying a system that I'm testing? incredibly complex stuff. Like I'm used to just, I'm going to pull as hard as I can, right. Until the plane can't give me any more. What were there any times that uh, you're like painted into a corner? Or do you find yourself like, eh, I wish I didn't do that going through TPS. And then like initially as a test pilot, cause I would like to talk about developmental tests versus operational tests and kind of what, what the differences is and like, what, what is developmental test? Cause that's where you found yourself after TPS. Correct. Yeah, no, it's good. So let me answer that first, the difference between operational tests, what we call OT and developmental tests, what we call VT, um, and then talk about some corners that uh, I may have painted myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, so developmental test is developing a system or an aircraft. Developmental test pilots go through test pilot school, and we are the first ones to touch a system. Maybe it's a weapon, maybe it's a radar or sensor, maybe it's the aircraft itself. Um, so the first people to fly it, to evaluate it, to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that it meets contractual obligations that were put out in the acquisition process. Uh, and we're the ones to kind of first do that. Operational test, uh, I think of them as the like tactical experts. So they're the ones that are extremely competent, credible at tactically flying the airframe. Now, to be a developmental test pilot, you have to be able to do that, right? But uh, an operational test pilot, those are the guys that are the tactician, they're the experts, and they're going to take the aircraft once it's safe to fly, once some basic contractual obligations have been met, proven through DT, they're going to take as operational test bots the plane, and they're going to ring it out, and they're going to put it in uh, simulated combat environments, and they're going to see if the system works not the way the contract says that it should work, that's my job as a DT pilot, but if it works the way that they need it to work um, for the warfighter. And so they're the ones that take an airframe like the F-35 and they develop the tactics on like, how are we gonna employ the F-35? I'm the pilot before any of that happened that made sure the F-35 could go fly at 1.6 Mach, that could go pull nine Gs if needed, it, that the radar worked, that the weapon uh, actually hit the target that it was supposed to, and they're going to take it and, and develop the tactic around it. So that's the difference between OT and DT. Yes, as a DT pilot, especially as a DT pilot in the F-15, which is a very proven F-15C and F-15E, very proven airframes. They've been around for decades. Um, some of them are older than me. Uh, <laughs> and there's not much to rediscover 
but our primary job in those planes is to ensure that radar upgrades, uh, software upgrades, weapon upgrades, that they all are safe. Um, and the weapon stuff is probably the most exciting things we would do. So if there's a, a new weapon, uh, for instance, I was flying around uh, an AMRAM, an AIM-120D now. So AIM-120D, it's the next generation of AMRAM that we're flying with it now. But when I was testing it back in 2012, uh, it, wasn't, um, it, it wasn't distributed yet or it had just been, but we were still doing some initial testing on it. Um, so I had to take that aircraft and um, go do what we call a compatibility flight profile on it. So I, I basically needed to go and make sure the thing didn't fall off the aircraft <laughs> and then make sure that I basically like turned the hell out of that thing, pulling as many G's as I could, <laughs> going as fast as I could, going as low as I could, going slow, doing everything I could in the entire flight envelope to make sure that that system didn't fall off and that it was ready to be safely separated from the aircraft. So there's different types of weapons testing we did, but this one compatibility flight profile is the, like putting it through the ringer of the entire flight envelope. And that was uh, an amazing experience where I, I basically took um, fully loaded F-15C, um, I think it was an F-15D actually, you know, the two seat, uh, which we did a lot of our testing in because we had flight test engineers in our backseat, but we actually didn't let a flight test engineer fly with me on this one because it was too high risk. Um, so we would go out fully loaded eight AMRAMs and we needed to go out the door and uh, go to Mach 2, uh, really 2.5 or get as fast as we could. We, we figured there were going to be some problems getting to 2.5. We needed to go as low and fast as we could, which was actually way more dangerous going 800 KCAS at you know 2,000 feet um, yeah. fully loaded. Uh, we had to go to 1.5 Mach and do full stick rolls at 7.2 Gs. So pulling 7.2 Gs with a complete and immediate step input of uh, full side stick to make sure that the, the aircraft, once again, was that's a part of its envelope that it's supposed to be able to do that this missile worked the way that it was supposed to. So it's not just that it falls off. I mean, I'm being dramatic when I say right. make sure it doesn't fall off. Like we literally are making sure it doesn't fall off, but we're also connected in with the, the weapon and making sure that it, it's not overheating or it's not having any vibration, vibrational issues and that it still works at the end of that mission. So I, just, I can get into more details of that, but that is like some of the stuff that we, uh, yeah. that I was able to, to go fly. Yeah, I just, I mean, I cringed during some of that story there, just like thinking about going those speeds, uh, obviously loaded out and like full inputs. And I mean, you're, you're straining things, but there's so many things that are going on that could go wrong. And these are really precise weapons. So it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And that's why I think it's like fascinating. You do have, you've shared some videos on Instagram, which, um, you know, doing flight tests with weapons that don't act the way they're supposed to. So people can go check those out, which I think are pretty, it's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. Side note, I did get to shoot a 120D, which is pretty cool. Right time, right place uh, test. But, you know, it's the advent of all the DT going through, making sure that everything works, which is pretty cool. The, yeah. Were there any times uh, doing tests like that that you found yourself in a spot where you said, uh, I don't want to be here right now? Yeah. Oh, yeah, D during that mission. So I'm, I'm testing the AIM-120D, and I'm doing the high mock run. So the plan is to go as fast as I can, no more than 2.5 mock, um, which – it, initially, we took six AMRAMs with us because the test did not call for eight AMRAMs. That's how many we can take. So we took six with us because it didn't say that we needed eight and the engineers thought it'd be fine. Um, and so I took six, which meant on one of my sides, I was missing two AMRAMs. So I was heavier on one side. And by the way, getting to Mach 2.5 um, in any aircraft is difficult. And well, you know, in, in these fighter aircraft is difficult. Yep. So trying to get to that speed uh, required me to basically be on the tanker, fully load up on gas, detach, and immediately go into afterburner, climb up to uh, 38,000, 39,000 feet at 0.9 Mach, accelerate out to like 1.1 Mach, climb up to 42,000 feet uh, at 1.1 Mach, descend down to 34,000 feet, um, getting around 1.5 Mach, climbing up to 48,000 feet and back down and then back up again to 50,000 feet, which is our ceiling. And then at 
1.8 Mach at 50,000 feet, start a nice and easy descent, looking for the temperature that is going to allow me to accelerate more, most effectively. Because you can't, what people would think is that you just, okay, you're at 50,000 feet, you're 1.8 Mach, I'm going to go 30 degrees nose low, and I'm going to get to 2.5 Mach. Like, absolutely not. It doesn't work that way. So uh, I'm at 50,000 feet. I'm starting to descend uh, at one point. Uh, eight Mach, and I'm, I'm looking for that sweet air to continue my acceleration out to pass two. Uh, and at 1.87 Mach, I distinctly remember um, my nose started hunting. Um, so I started questioning the directional stability of the aircraft, once again, leaning back on my developmental test pilot experience through test pilot school, where the nose starts, it's a feeling of like being on ice skates, where you feel like the nose starts kind of moving back and forth, left and right, um, a little too loosely. And um, it, it started feeling uncomfortable. And as you accelerate, of course, uh, you're gonna have other issues uh, if you have directional instability issue, you know, problems. So my nose starts hunting back and forth. And at the same time, I get a bleed air light, um, which is one of the, like, the most pressing emergencies in an F-15. A bleed air light is saying like, hey, there is um, a bleed air leak going on and, and bleed, uh, bleed air is coming off the engine at super hot, like over a thousand degrees. It's basically a blowtorch. Um, and it is a, a major issue to have a bleed air light. And so I find myself at 1.87 Mach with some directional stability concerns while I have this bleed air emergency at 50,000 feet. <laughs> like, all right, so I got to slow down. And guess what? You can't just slow down when you're going that fast, because if you just rip the throttles to idle and they let you take it to idle, you'd blow out both your engines right away. You'd compress or stop both of them. So we have something called idle cutoff. Um, basically, I throw the engines to idle, but the engine knows like, hey, dummy, I'm not actually going to go to idle. Um, and at certain speeds, it, it takes you to certain settings. So when you're going as fast as I'm going and I go to idle, it actually just takes me to mill power. It takes me out of AB, um, which by the way, is, is <laughs> still going super fast. So now I'm trying to slow down. Um, I start with the directional stability. I start trying to put G's on the aircraft, but it just so happens in the F-15 at certain airspeeds, actually it accelerates faster at two G's than it does at one G. So now I start pulling G's, but now I start kind of accelerating more because it's trying to, so at the same time, I'm supposed to like, you know, turn off my, I'm, I'm forgetting all the, you know, it's been a while since I flew the F-15, but I have to turn off my air uh, to the to the bleed system so that the this torch that could be going on back there is, um, it, you know, it has this air cut off, which also decompresses the, the cockpit. And so like all these things are going on at once, it's an extremely intense situation. Uh, this is why we have flight control, uh, this is why we have control rooms and flight test engineers and other people supporting us on the ground. And it's an amazing team sport uh, flight test. So we finally, um, I'm able to slow down. It took me forever because the engines didn't want to slow down. So I started bringing more Gs on the aircraft, being careful with directional instability that I was feeling. And we were able to slow down and then I declared an emergency and, and returned home right away. Um, it turns out that the bleed air uh, was just a bad sensor. Uh, so I didn't have a bleed air leak. I didn't know that at the time, of course. Right. Um, so it's situations like that, uh, that I've definitely felt very uncomfortable trying to like, trying to figure out everything that's going wrong and not overreacting in certain situations, um, that could make things worse for me. Now I go back up and I, I basically told them we couldn't fly, uh, that, that mission again was six missiles that the directional uh, instability was too much of a concern. So they, they made it symmetric, gave me eight missiles. And then we, we were able to go out um, a few days later and successfully um, uh, do the entire mission. But that's, that's one story of being painted, I guess, into a corner, flying high and fast. You, you know, the, um, so the Dash 2, for those who don't know, that, that is all the limits and the different configurations that we look at. Uh, for me, as a simpleton, uh, you know, it's, it's a spaghetti chart. I mean, it's a, you know, for the F-16, I mean, it's probably 800 pages of just different configurations. I assume the F-15, probably similar along those lines. One thing I've always been curious about is going out fully loaded. And this, your story has spurred that, right? If we go out six by O and shoot four missiles, you know, we're typically still doing the same tactics. You know, that's all we ever talk. We talk about same tactics and flows and getting fast. Um, but there are sub notes, right? In the dash two, or it's talking as the configuration changes. And that would be one of those scenarios. If you went out eight by O in the Eagle, then only shot two, you could find yourself in that situation, right? 
Yeah, we were actually a part of writing those notes, right? So that's that's kind of our job is to communicate that. Now I will say like the Eagle is, is stable. Um, I think that there's some stability concerns uh, depending on your asymmetric situation. Uh, the truth is though, no one's going out. I mean, it's so rare to go those speeds anyway. Right, it'd, right? Be, it'd, be, it'd be super rare, like yeah. yeah, end of the world type scenario. Yeah. Like it could happen, of course, but just going that fast for any aircraft, um, you're using so much fuel that it, it, it isn't usually advisable. Right. Um, yes, but you have to be, as a pilot, you need to be aware of those notes and the notes would probably say, hey, you know, be careful for directional stability if you have, you know, uh, an asymmetric Amrium loadout. Yeah, the, uh, I'm curious too, so uh, you've worked several programs and I know it probably depends. AIM-120D is probably one of those programs. Uh, small diameter bomb, I think the second version as well. What does, like, what are one of those programs, what does it look like kind of start to finish? Like how much planning and detail? Because like, hey, we want to buy bomb X or missile Y. It's not just that simple. It's a, it's a long, obviously, procurement process. But when it shows up to developmental test, how, like, how long does that take? What does that process look like? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. Uh, a lot of these weapon systems, as you rightly said, it, it takes years to procure them, um, get them on contract. The, the test pilot community, the test professional community, they get involved fairly soon. Um, for starters, a lot of the acquisition program offices have individuals that have been through test pilot school, right? Um, so flight test engineers and, and or pilots. Uh, so from the beginning, they they have a perspective of what is going to be needed in order to uh, validate, verify. So you um, you get it though after however long that lead turn is, and you work with the team before it really shows up. You work with the team on what test points do you need to go prove that this is safe and that it meets the contractual specifications. I've been a part of some programs. Um, we we were supporting a. I won't mention the country. We were supporting a, a country who's, uh, you know, an ally of ours, um, and they wanted to test something on the F-15. And so, uh, what we did is we're you're given so much money. Uh, we are given a, a schedule, uh, what we call cost schedule performance. You know, so we're managing cost schedule performance of this, and we need to go make sure that this this weapon uh, that they they wanted us to test was going to work the way that it was supposed to. And so. You know, for that, we wanted to do a 15 flight program. We wanted to do a compatibility flight profile to make sure that it didn't fall off the aircraft. We wanted to do a safe separation. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that it is safe, safely separates from the aircraft. Um, safe separation is, is important, is extremely important. Uh, and it basically is separating the weapon, either firing a missile or dropping a bomb at the kind of the extreme envelope of that weapon. So a GBU-12, I had to go do a safe separation of a GBU-12 and an F-35, and it was only a 5G or something like that. I forget all that, but it, you know, it was a few Gs basically of this is how the weapon could possibly be used. Um, for a, a missile, it's usually going to the corner of the envelope. So, hey, 9G pull, we need you to fire this missile and just make sure that it separates. But you build up to that. So it takes a number of flights. And then you're going to go out the door and you're going you're gonna to do weapons accuracy testing, which is making sure that the, the system hits the target that is supposed to hit, which is totally different than safe separation, because now you're bringing in the actual mission systems of the platform. So we wanted to do like 15 flights and the program office, uh, the people involved were like, listen, you have... Uh, you have three flights to completely <laughs> uh, shoot down a full-scale F-4 drone off your nose by one mile at the extreme. So uh, over seven and a half Gs, um, go in, you know, mock whatever, I won't say the numbers. Yeah. Uh, and you basically have one flight to make sure it doesn't fall off the aircraft, one flight to make sure the system is working correctly, and you have one missile, one shot, go to the, go to the corner of the envelope. Now, there's sometimes where you push back. And that's our job responsibility to say that's not enough, but we were able to mitigate the risk enough where we feel comfortable and we could go do that. So like in that instance, it was, you have the weapon for, you know, two months and then you write the report and give your engineering recommendation. What was your transition like? Cause from running F-15 doing F-15 test into the F-35, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I had a great lead into it. Cause I was the, um, 
I was the developmental test lead for the F-35 program at the program office for two years before I started flying the F-35. So I was extremely familiar with the programmatics behind the platform. I understood what all the test sites were doing. I managed uh, flight tests at both Pax River, which is uh, F-35B and F-35C flight science testing, as well as aircraft carrier suitability testing. And I managed all the flight operations at Edwards Air Force Base, which was F-35A flight science testing and F-35A, F-35B, and F-35C mission systems testing. So we were responsible uh, for doing all the mission systems of the F-35. So when I jumped into the platform, I knew the problems that, that we were facing. Um, I will say it was, it was amazing to, to get in an aircraft that is new, uh, you know, flying the <laughs> F-15C and even the F-15E, which was, um, you know, still a few decades old to, to something that, you know, new car smell. Yeah. And it, uh, it, it was great. You know, the technology was amazing, uh, though we were having some major problems in the F-35 program. Um, as everyone knows, I mean, it was politically charged, of course, we had to, when I was in the program office, we had to deal with a lot of inquiries and frustrations with um, kind of misrepresentation of how the aircraft was doing, uh, which was frustrating to deal with. Like there was a dogfight that it wasn't a dogfight, but it got misconstrued as a dogfight and the F-35 was being outperformed by an F-16. And it, like, it wasn't the test that wasn't what they were doing. They weren't like the whole story wasn't out there. So we dealt with that like nonstop. Um, and then jumping into the, the platform and really seeing the struggles that we were having. I mean, the F-35, I wasn't a believer, man. I, really? I gotta be honest. And I've said this, I've said this to many news outlets when I was the commander of F-35, yeah. <laughs> like I'm a total believer now, but I was not a believer, uh, because it was, it just was not performing, you know, like getting the aircraft started took forever, right? It's like start restarting your computer. You'd have to like reset it yeah. because the systems weren't starting up correctly. And they have a major stability issues. Like if you, the, the thing is it's all fusion based. And so for the listeners that don't understand fusion, all the sensors are fused together, working together in order to give the, the operator the picture that they need in order to employ on the battlefield. The problem with fusion is you don't really know what's wrong sometimes because if you can't see the target at 40 nautical miles, is it the radar that can't see the target or is it the, um, the IR sensor that is actually taking a piece of data and inputting it wrong into the fusion engine, which is now impacting the radar. And now you could say the same thing for data links and um, MATL, which is our own onboard uh, link between F-35s. So it's just very complicated and intricate. And, and because of that, the system wasn't stable. Like, a radar would shut down and the whole system would shut down while we're flying. And you're like, well, I can't do this test now because F-35 is not working. Um, we went out and something the F-35 does very well now is called Enhanced Geolocation or EGL. It's uh, the kind of the seed mission. So if suppression of enemy air defenses, if people don't know, and you're basically trying to find surface to air missile threats, they're gonna attack you. And the F-35 is supposed to be really good at this. And we were like scratching our heads because it, it just wasn't working. Like we, I remember the first tape I was flying in the formation and it was like, all right, this doesn't work. You know, like these buttons aren't working. This thing's not working and all the data. And so the engineers um, were trying to, trying to figure out what was going on. And this is kind of my first few months in the, in the program, uh, flying, pardon me, flying in the jet. And so I wasn't a believer. And then what happened is they figured out the stability of the, the system um, so that it wasn't shutting down and was starting up correctly. And once they figured that out, they went to town on getting the capability where it needed to. So I'll tell you, man, it was like just crazy night and day, November, October, whatever, a few years ago, I think it was 2016, like the system wasn't working at all. Fast forward a year and we were doing like 10 ship operations with amazing EGL quality, um, being able to do the entire suppression of enemy air defense mission set uh, with no real hiccups in the system. And then this is around the same time people are going to red flag with, there's some red flags where we did uh, 2B software and 2B doesn't have like EGL and some, a lot of the mission system stuff, which is an older um, kind of software suite. And so now we're flying with 3F at this point and the system was cooking along and it, it really uh, was awesome to see that entire team all the way from Lockheed Martin to the program office, to our team, to PAX River, really see that jet come full circle in a very short period of time once they figured out that uh, the software stability problem. Yeah. I, what do you, I mean, do you think it was just, 
the Air Force doing a bad job at press and telling the story of the F-35 initially, or is it just some naysay? I mean, you guys answered a lot of those questions. I know that like the standard, hey, you can't replace the A-10, right? But that the F-35 is not meant right. to replace the A-10. Like it's not, it's solving, right. it's solving more complex problems. Yes, dude. Yeah. I, I don't know. The answer to your initial question is, did the Air Force do a poor job? I, I don't know. I, I think that um, there was a lot going against the F-35. I think that people don't understand how complicated this um, this system really is and how difficult it is to create this machinery that is really changing the battlefield. Um, even when they initially thought of some of the capability the F-35 was going to have, they didn't know how they were going to get there when they initially came up with it, right? So it's just a long process. Um, and I think that that's some of the difficulties when you have a long process. I think that they had um, some programmatic issues in the way they acquired it. I think there are some problems with concurrency, which is doing OT and DT at the same time, though we made the best of it. I think there are problems too um, with the way that we were managing the program back in the late 2000, like 9, 2010 timeframe. And there was a non-McCurdy, which people won't understand, but it's like an acquisition issue. Basically, we're going way over budget. And, and so they rearranged um, the way that we were going to manage programmatics, which helped a lot. So we weren't helping ourselves out initially. On top of it, it was a very complicated problem. Um, and then because of that, we were ha having bad press. People were looking basically for blood in the water. Um, and they would, you know, they would take stories like this whole A-10 thing or the dogfighting thing, and, and they would blow it out of proportion and make everyone's you know, job more difficult. I, and I don't want to throw the media under the bus, like not at all, man. I think that's important, right? Uh, it's their right. It's a right to make sure that we're held accountable, that we're transparent. But it, it was challenging because I feel at times um, people didn't understand. And the whole A-10 thing, man, I love the A-10. The A-10 <laughs> can never be beat on the battlefield regarding close air support, you know, maybe a gunship, right? But you're, yeah. you're basically <laughs> like just phenomenal at, at what you're doing. But that, exactly what you said, the F-35 was never meant to be that support system, right? It's meant to be the fifth gen fighter that can go into a contested environment and still get the job done, even though it won't do it um, the same way that the A-10 does it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to transition a little bit about what you're doing now. So can you tell the listeners what your current role is uh, and what that what a day in the life looks like? Artificial intelligence has been around for decades, right? It's now becoming this big buzzword and people are trying to understand it more because we got to a point where we basically had the computing power on top of the data that allowed machine learning and artificial intelligence, by the way, machine learning is artificial intelligence is a subset of it, um, allowed machine learning to be effective, right? And so over the past decade, we've really recognized that we're able to use uh, like artificial intelligence machine learning to solve some of our problems. But um, the challenge is a lot of people are uneducated regarding AI machine learning. Um, they don't understand like really what we're going after because they just, they, they conjure up images of, you know, what is it like robot eye or, you know, the AI movie or yeah. Skynet. Yeah. They just don't understand like, no, AI is, is just a part of, you know, systems basically. It, it, it powers systems to, um, to allow them to be more effective and to work better with the operator, right? So uh, our job up here at MIT um, is to, basically work with MIT in solving Air Force problems using artificial intelligence. And we're, it's all unclassified work. Like MIT um, is an academic institution. They're very concerned about making sure that we're doing something for society, that we're not trying to weaponize anything. And like that, absolutely, like there's no part of what we're doing that's weaponizing AI. Like that is some conversations that I'm sure other people are having, but we are working on like 10 unclassified projects to just make AI real for our airmen and our space professionals um, out there. And so we have 10 projects that kind of run the gamut. One's R2-D2 in the cockpit, helping a pilot understand, um, you know, like if they're on a wrong route or if they are getting too long gas and like getting their attention, think R2-D2, like that's kind of the, the name we've given it, R2-D2 in the cockpit. Another one is helping pilots um, at pilot training uh, maximize their effectiveness by monitoring how they're doing, 
seeing where they're maybe they're looking their eye, where, where they are focused their attention on, um, and then giving that information to instructors while they're in a sim, right? So as a sim instructor, and you've been an uh, instructor at a pilot training base, I believe, right? Yep. And uh, if you knew though, like, hey, your pilot that you're monitoring now in the sim is spending 90% of their time looking at their attitude and you know, no time looking at their airspeed, you can know right then if you've kind of tapped them out, right? So it's, it's a way for us to measure cognitive performance and to feed that back to instructors to help them better instruct the student that is, uh, you know, that is, is going through a, a sim mission or a flight mission one day. Um, you know, we have other ones where we're working on uh, weather and trying to better forecast predict weather using the different systems that, the, uh, that are at our disposal. Um, other projects are uh, small UAS, like uh, imagine a disaster, a hurricane that comes in and you want small UASs to go out and you want them to find survivors, people that are maybe stuck in debris that need help so you can focus the first responders to those areas. Well, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how to train these autonomous small UASs to to be able to go do that, right? Because you can't just drop an autonomous drone into a, a hurricane ravaged city and think it's going to go out and figure out like where everything is and where where the survivors are. So it needs to actually be trained effectively. So we're actually, our program is working on training these drones to be able to go out and autonomously help, um, you know, survivors. Uh, and the, the list goes on. And we're also working on trying to educate um, the Air Force and the Space Force on what AI is. Uh, so we have a number of eff efforts um, uh, along those lines. There are 11 active duty officers, uh, pardon me, 11 active duty um, Air Force members here, uh, nine officers and two enlisted. Um, and they are integrated with the project teams on MIT side. And we also work with Lincoln Labs. So it's kind of a, a, us trying to break down barriers um, and integrate with work with our, our academic partners in order to, you know, bring to bear AI. So bringing that to bear, what does that process look like? Are any of these, do you think any things will actually make it? So for instance, the pilot training simulator and monitoring students, how does that go from concept to development to actually executing and using it? Yeah, one of the challenges we have in the acquisition world is trying to figure out how to integrate technology like this. And AI, because it, it could be useful in a lot of scenarios, um, you know, how do you integrate it into systems that are already out there? How do you develop systems that have it? Um, how do you test those systems? How do you make sure it's ethical the way that you're presenting? And that's an imperative for us is, you know, ethical implementation of AI. Um, but ultimately, we we partnered with program offices from the inception of each of our projects. So they're involved with our weekly meetings, they're involved with our, uh, the progress of uh, some of this technology. And as we go towards some of these big goals, like this whole idea of R2D2 in the cockpit, dude, that is a enormous ask, right? It's a huge goal that's gonna take years to possibly get there. But what our team is able to do, because we have airmen here embedded, is they're, they're able to see where we could take some of the technology that's being developed and spin it off uh, using Lincoln Labs and program offices to figure out like, oh, we could use this algorithm in these scenarios too um, to help, you know, whatever situation um, is, is going on out there. So for instance, one of our projects is called Puckboard and it is, uh, you know, you can imagine a scheduling, like scheduling in a fighter squadron or, um, uh, you know, a heavy squadron is, is very complicated. Um, we have all these different computer programs. Uh, we usually rely on puck boards. So they're like magnetic boards with people's names on them. And then the scheduler just kind of throws up different names. And, and so what we're trying to do is power a lot of the systems that are out there um, with AI on the back end so that they can be useful, um, more useful for the operators and, and more inter, uh, interactive. So like having an app on your phone where you could put in a few things and then AI comes uh, a part of that and, and can help the scheduler make the best decisions quickly on like who should be scheduled for certain missions. And why I told you that whole thing about Puckboard is because we are right now, we're actually transitioning that technology. Um, so we're able to work with those program offices and operators. So it's in C-17 squadrons. Um, it's a part of their scheduling software that they use. 
and it's, it's baby steps right now. Just a few uh, factors are going into that AI powered aspect of the system, um, but we are able to transition some of those capabilities right now. So that's one of them. We have a few others that we're working to transition. Um, and other than that, we're, we're doing basic research here and, and looking for opportunities to uh, help uh, our airmen and space professionals out there that need um, or that have problems that, that could um, be, be crushed with AI. I think if you solve squadron scheduling, you've solved all the world's problems. Like you guys can pack it up and, and head home. Yeah. I think we're realizing that the fighter, like what we've worked so far is hopefully going to be a back end for fighter squadrons, but it's not as useful it, yeah. it, right now in its current state, it's great for C-17 um, squadrons. And that's what our customer, that's what we're working for. But yeah, the fighter squadron scheduling um, <laughs> is still, we're still uh, a little bit away from that. It's 20, 30 years down the road. No, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I know, so obviously in your current capacity and not weaponizing and things of that nature, there's a clear delineation there. What do you think the future of AI and what that's going to have in the battle space and how that's going to shape the future for, for wars? I definitely think that it is going to shape our societies tremendously. It already is. People, I think, are starting to realize that. Uh, as you wake up in the morning and ask you know, Siri or Alexa what the weather is, right? that's all AI. It's natural, uh, natural language processing AI. Um, and it is becoming a part of everything that, uh, that we're interacting with, um, our weather forecasts and our social media, our, the people, how they're marketing to us. Um, so uh, it's, it's definitely here to stay because computers have gotten fast enough and the data's you know, um, been, we've, we've been able to collect enough of the data to make it most effective. It's going to impact our medical, um, you know, and, and there's no way, uh, there's no way it's not gonna impact our battlefield, right? It absolutely will. The, the challenges we have is we really need to smartly think through this. And we are, as a military, trying to be extremely proactive in, in the ethical aspect of it and being transparent because some of the challenges uh, that you have with some of the AI, AI algorithms is if you created an AI algorithm today that is for a finance system and it's gonna help people get paid more effectively and pinpoint where there's problems with finance for instance, um, you could turn that AI algorithm with other data around a few weeks later and it could be used in combat. And so when you think of the way the algorithms needed to de be developed and how we need to approach it, we have got to be extremely careful because um, it's important that we do it. It's an absolute imperative that we do it, that we bring AI into our systems, into our society effectively, but we have got to be careful how we do it because it, it's a very easy switch from a good and happy AI system to a nefarious AI system, right? And so that's what we need to be um, to be careful on. Now, with regard to the battlefield, like, absolutely. I mean, we are going to need AI to counter certain threats that are powered by AI, right? That that's going to be out there. Um, and so, how are we going to effectively do that? We need to, I think, come together as a society and understand the benefits, the value, like there's so much value in it. It's not general AI. It's not going to, general AI means like a uh, conscious computer system that's going to take over the world, like a, you know, a Skynet or a Matrix. It's not that, it, ne it may never be that, uh, you know, we're way far away from that. So we need to understand that we have to implement it now. We have to work together with academia. We have to work together with industry and we need to um, transparently, transparently develop the the capability and figure out how to most effectively implement it into the, you know, uh, the battlefield. And who do you, who owns that process? Like, who do you think that, I mean, is that rest on the shoulders and responsibility of everyone? That's, that's a deep question, I think, but I mean, it's, it's a big question. It is. Uh, yeah, it's a big question. And I think we all need to take responsibility to owning that answer. There are entities in the DOD, like the joint artificial intelligence center, um, that is feverishly working on some of those aspects of it, right? And that's really important, but it can't just be that center. It can't just be the budget we have. Like, I, I don't run the budget, and I know there's a lot of complications, so I, I wouldn't venture to say that they're doing it wrong. I'm not saying that at all, but I definitely know that it takes a lot of investment, too, in order to effectively um, bring about this technology in ethical way. Um, so we, we need to have a lot of people engaged 
And we need people to understand the role as a, as a society, like as an American society, man, I love America, right? And we're different. We're dis disparate. Of course, we come from uh, disparate backgrounds and there's a lot of different opinions and there's some challenges. I mean, some real challenges that we're facing, of course, as a society that is playing out, um, you know, on social media and on media and uh, in our neighborhoods. Uh, but like we have got to figure out a way to come together and recognize that we are in this together and there are some serious threats. And uh, the only way for us to solve it is to, to try to unite behind um, a voice of, um, you know, ethical development and implementation in our systems and hold people to account, right? Hold not just, and I'm not talking about like other nations, uh, that could be a piece of it, but I'm talking about like our, our big tech companies and our government, we need to hold each other to account, but work together in order to, to see that future. Absolutely. And I know it's a complex problem. Well, sir, as we wrap up the podcast, I like to ask my guest, if you found 15 year old Cinco in the street, is there any advice you would give him? No, I, I wouldn't give him any advice. Um, not per se, I guess. Uh, what I would, what I would love to share with myself when I were younger is um and with other listeners that you know maybe in this part of their life is you know i firmly believe things happen for a reason um and i think that there's going to be so many failures like that's what i would want to tell myself is like dude you are going to fall on your face so many times right like you're gonna uh you're gonna do things that you regret you're gonna say things that you regret you're going to make decisions that are just horrible decisions, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you're going to fail. You're going to take tests that you prepared for and you're going to get crushed by it. You're going to have like these things happen to your career that, that you did not expect, that you did not want to have happen. And you're going to think that um, like it, certain pathways are totally closed to you because of, of what is happening. And they may be, but the point is like, dude, it is all right. Like, it is, it's not all right to, to like stay down, right? When you get knocked down, it's not all right to stay down. You have a responsibility to get up and know that, that what is being formed in you is something much greater than that failure in that moment, right? Like if you want to develop character, if you want to develop virtue, uh, you need discipline and you need to understand that when those things go wrong, that you either had control of or didn't have control of regardless, that, that there is something out there for you to learn from those experiences and to pick yourself back up and keep moving um, to, to live that fulfilled life, right? And that's um, because I've had so many failures and things that didn't go the way that I expected or planned. Um, I, I just would want to remind myself in those nights, when those moments, you know, with tears or with sorrow or uh, with anger, with fear, frustration, whatever it is, like there is a tomorrow and there is something to gain from that experience, to pick yourself back up from, to move on towards. Even though it's confusing at times where to go, you gotta, you gotta get moving. That's perfect. And I love wrapping up the podcast. I and mean, that's some sage advice. Colonel Hamilton, I really appreciate your time. I know people are really gonna enjoy hearing your story in aviation and everything that you've been, been doing and have done up to this point. Awesome. No, Rain, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, fantastic to be able to connect with other aviators and to be able to share um, my stories with, uh, you know, aviation enthusiasts and other listeners out there um, because we all have stories and they're great to share. And, and I appreciate the ability, the platform that you've uh, provided me to be able to, to share those. Oh, thank you, sir. And again, best of luck in the future and hopefully our paths cross soon. Yeah, all my best, friend. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Carl Hamilton. Again, I'd like to thank all my Patreon supporters as well as those who've gone over to iTunes and left a rating review. Again, all that is tremendously helpful to the podcast. We'll see you back here in two weeks.